Hey everybody, Matt Knotts from the Anomaly Presents podcast, inviting you to join us for the Anomaly Film Festival. It's our fourth edition, November 3rd through the 6th, at the historic Little Theater in Rochester, New York. We've got so much great stuff for you. Tons of films you've never seen before. One you may have seen before, but never quite like this. That's Friday the 13th, 3 in 3D, amongst many other great surprises. It's the Anomaly Film Fest, anomalyfilmfest.com, November 3rd through 6th. We'll see you there. Lunchador Podcast Network presents Ghosts in the Graveyard, a podcast of horror fiction. Greetings, traveler. My name is McKenneth Blue. I graduated from SUNY Oswego in 2008 with a BA in Creative Writing and Film. I spent most of the following summer starting literary fiction novels that remain unfinished to this day. The plan at the time was to take a gap year and then go to grad school. Instead, I got a job in retail that lasted for five years. My next job was as a customer service rep in a call center. Before too long, I found that I'd occasionally have time to kill between calls. I started filling that time writing short stories in my moleskin notebook. And these short stories all had one thing in common. Horror. I've been a horror kid as long as I can remember. Some of my earliest memories include watching movies like Creepshow, Silver Bullet, and Aliens. I read scary stories to tell in the dark and Tales from the Crypt comics. Stephen King books were bedtime stories in my house. Horror media has always been there for me, and this podcast is, in some way, my attempt to repay that. The first story that I'll share here is the first of the stories I wrote at my call center job. It owes its existence in no small part to Stephen King in general, Creepshow specifically, and the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill in particular. Jordy's story has always been one of my favorite pieces of the King oeuvre, not only because of King's own Wile E. Coyote-inspired performance, but also the way that science fiction was blended with horror and comedy. Creepshow was King and Romero's love letter to EC Comics. This story is my love letter to Jordy Verrill. I took... Okay, stole. The idea of a meteor crashing onto the front lawn of a regular person's home as a jumping-off point, and went from there. I tossed in a dash of body horror, sprinkled it with zombies, and eventually, the story I'm about to share came to be. It's had a few different titles since I started working on it in a cubicle way back in 2013. I've never been particularly thrilled with any of them, including the one that's going by now. Titles aren't usually an issue, but you never know what's going to be the sticking point. In any case, I suppose that seven years is long enough for this one to rattle around in my head. This story is about a line cook named Michael Waters and the terrible events that follow a meteorite landing in his yard. Sit back, dim the lights, or switch them off if you don't have dimmers, and enjoy. Well, I say enjoy. Michael Made the Coffee by McKenneth Tyson Blue The meteor floated through the emptiness of space much as it had for the last trillion miles. Every once in a while, it would bump into some other lump of space junk and its course would be altered. 
For the most part, however, it was just float and spin, float and spin, float and spin. Then one day, in the middle of the outer spiral arm of some backwood galaxy, the meteor was pulled into the gravity well of a planet of no particular significance. The meteor grew hot and glowed as it fell toward the planet's surface. Large chunks of the meteor broke off and burned away to nothing. By the time it hit the ground outside the house with the tidy lawn, the meteor was roughly the size of a basketball. The impact shook the house. Dishes rattled in the cupboards. A small ceramic figure toppled from a nightstand to shatter on the floor. Michael Waters woke from a dream where things had been about to get interesting with the captain of the cheerleading squad of the high school from which he'd graduated almost 15 years prior. Confused, he searched the room with bleary eyes for the source of the disturbance. Michael's German shepherd Harvey ran into the room and crawled into the bed, shaking. Michael fought his way to a seated position at the edge of the bed and managed to work his feet into his slippers. He stumbled his way down the hall and hardly bumped into anything as he went. Harvey followed. By the time he was out the front door, Michael was angry. The vision of the naked cheerleader was gone from his mind, and the adrenaline rush he'd experienced on waking made him jumpy. He tromped his way through the yard with a scowl. On seeing the impact crater, his first thought was the kids around the corner had blown up a buried firecracker again. Then he saw the meteorite steaming at the bottom of the pit it had created. The air around the space rock shimmered from the heat coming off it. Harvey wouldn't go near the thing. He hung back and growled with his tail between his legs. Michael yawned and gave a shrug as he wandered back toward the house. He decided to deal with it in the morning. Harvey followed. Michael found he was too tired to make it upstairs. He let himself fall upon the couch and back to sleep where he found the cheerleader was ready and waiting. The next morning, the meteorite had not only cooled but drawn a crowd as well. Michael's neighbors were gathered round the crater. Michael watched them as he sipped his coffee by the front window. The nerve of his neighbors coming onto his property annoyed Michael to no end. He disliked crowds in general and usually the people who comprise them as well. Most likely this was because of his years in the food service industry. In Michael's experience, people were rude, obnoxious, demanding, and most wouldn't know a steak cooked medium rare from a block of Asiago. He finished his coffee and went outside to the shed. There, he collected a pair of hard-worn work gloves and his wheelbarrow. Items in hand, he wheeled his way around the house toward the crowd gathered on his front lawn. Go on, get out of here, he said, shooing them away. Some bolted immediately. The more boldly curious stuck around. Got a space rock in your yard, Mike, one of the gawkers said. It was the old guy from next door. Michael didn't know his name. Even after ten years of occasionally having to return his missorted mail, Michael was only vaguely confident that the man's name started with a G. "'Golly, it sure is, boss,' said some kid Michael'd never seen before. "'I touched it. It feels like a rock!' "'It is a rock,' Michael muttered. He squatted and grabbed the meteorite to pick it up, not knowing its dense composition caused it to weigh over sixty pounds. The veins in Michael's temples pulsed as he lifted the meteorite into the wheelbarrow. Having accomplished his task, he grabbed the wheelbarrow's handles and wheeled away from the crowd. "'Clear out!' he said over his shoulder. The crowd dispersed. The old man, whose name didn't start with a G but was actually Norman, grumbled something about hoping the meteorite was soaking in cosmic radiation. Maybe growing a couple extra heads will teach him some manners. Michael closed the shed door and pulled the light cord. The bare bulb came to life as he squatted to inspect the wheelbarrow's cargo. 
The meteorite was lovely. It was alternately metallic and sedimentary. The metallic portions shined mirror-like. He lifted it onto the workbench and took a step back, wondering just what he should do with the thing. For now, he decided to lock it in the shed and take a shower. After having done so, he dressed and took Harvey for a walk. While Harvey did his business, Michael came to terms with the idea that he'd have to spend a good portion of his day off taking care of the crater in his front yard. He'd have to go to the hardware store and get some grass seed and probably some fertilizer too. Then he'd have to actually take time to fill the stupid thing in. That was still a few days away though. For now, he had to get Harvey inside and head to work. He said goodbye to the dog and gave him a kiss and headed out. The closer he got to the restaurant, the less Michael cared about the crater and the more he worried about what state he'd find the kitchen in once he arrived. His apprehension was validated when, upon unlocking the back door and flicking on the fluorescent lights, he was greeted by utter devastation. The sections of the pans piled high in the sink that were not caked in filth gave off dull reflections. Michael pushed his sleeves up and set to work. By the time the next person arrived, there was still plenty to do. As the others started to trickle in, they paid him no mind. One asked if the night crew had left the mess, but didn't offer to help. Michael might have been more upset if he hadn't come to expect this sort of thing. Before Michael could finish the last few dishes, Justin Rooney, the owner of the establishment, burst through the door. Rooney always had the self-important air of a Wall Street power player no matter the situation. He stopped to look around the kitchen, a look of disapproval on his face. One of the servers rushed over with a cup of coffee. Good morning, Mr. Rooney, they said. Rooney gave no reply. The server all but ran away. Why aren't the dishes done? Rooney said. Mikey, come here. Michael tossed the steel wool scrubber into the sink and followed Rooney to the office. Rooney always called him Mikey. Michael hated it. Rooney was also the only boss he'd ever had who made employees call him Mr. Close the door. Why are there dirty pots and pans out there, Mikey? We've talked about this. I don't want dirty dishes when I get here. Yes, Mr. Rooney, I, the night crew didn't clean up after their shift. I don't care. I just know the kitchen's a mess when I get here. The night crew... Do you not see the night crew? See the... Do you not see the night crew before you leave, Mikey? Michael shrugged. Rooney made a tent with his fingers. Perhaps you should remind them that it's their responsibility to make my kitchen clean before they leave next time you see them. They don't listen to me, I'm just a cook, Michael said. Rooney hit his desk with a fist. No one is just an anything here, Mikey. We are all part of a team here. Everyone on the team has to pull their weight to lead each other. If one gear doesn't turn another, the clock doesn't keep time. What good is the clock then? What good are you to me if you can't get the night crew to clean the dishes before they leave? Did you even pay attention to that trim tab video we watched? The one with the little thing that turns the big boat? You're that tiny thing on the boat. Michael was sure Rooney had finished. It was almost disappointing when Rooney said, If it happens again, you're fired. Get out. That evening, as Michael was getting ready to leave, he saw the late shift coming in. He went over to the supervisor. You guys didn't do the dishes last night, and I got my ass chewed out today because of it. Bet you liked that, he said with a smile as he chomped on a wad of gum. Look, just do them before you leave, all right? I, I need this job. The supervisor crossed his arms and asked, Why? For money, Michael said. The supervisor just rolled his eyes and walked away. Is that you saying you'll take care of it? The supervisor gave Michael the finger and blew a raspberry at him. 
Michael left. Later, loser, the supervisor laughed as he smacked a waitress on the butt. Michael entered the shed and turned on the light. Most nights he'd come here after a bad shift and break something. Tonight was no different. He stood fuming for a time as he replayed the events of the day in his head. Then there was a hammer in his hand and he was striking the meteorite over and over. There was a sharp crack when the meteorite split in two. Michael stopped and caught his breath. He looked at the remains of the meteorite and was surprised to find the inside was hollow. The inside walls were composed of the loveliest crystal Michael had ever seen, a sparkling white with an opalescent sheen. Michael took the smaller of the two chunks and sat down to study it. Even under the dull light of the bulb overhead, the crystalline structures of the meteorite shimmered with otherworldly radiance. Michael was only peripherally aware that his mouth was watering. His mind was almost screaming at him to taste the crystals. The longer he looked at them, the more the crystals started to resemble cotton candy. The effect was stronger than memory. For a moment, Michael was four years old. Little Michael had just won an oversized teddy bear at the ring toss. As they were leaving, Dad had turned to him and said, They've got something here that you're really going to love, Mikey. In the background, Michael could hear people screaming on a roller coaster as they raced over a hill. Somewhere, a barker was telling people to step right up here and try their luck. His father was handing him an oversized stick of sweet pink stuff. Michael had buried his face in the soft pink cloud and filled his mouth with sweetness and come out of it sticky and laughing. If he gave the crystals a little lick, what would it matter? No one was going to see him do it, and besides, they were almost certain to taste exactly like cotton candy. The scene began to fade, but the feelings clung to him like a fog. He was going to do it. He swallowed and licked his lips. Why had he ever thought the crystals were white? They were cotton candy pink. And Harvey was licking them. Michael pushed the dog away. Hey, 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 not for dogs. He put the meteorite aside. Harvey looked back at his owner and panted. Michael patted the dog on the head. All right, let's go, he said. Michael was nearly done eating before he noticed that Harvey wasn't sitting by his side begging for scraps the way he usually was. Michael looked around and saw the dog lying down in the living room. What's the matter with you, he said. Harvey only whined in response. Michael left the table and went to kneel at Harvey's side. The dog's belly was distended and rigid to the touch. The dog's breathing was rapid and shallow. Michael noticed something dark running from Harvey's eye. He dabbed it with his fingers and was shocked to find it was blood. Good lord, he choked. He raced to the front door and grabbed Harvey's leash and collar. From the other room, he heard Harvey hacking and retching. Had Michael been in the room, he'd have seen the dog vomit blood on the carpet in alarming amounts. Fumbling to get the collar undone and attached to the leash, Michael rushed back toward the living room. Okay, boy, let's get you. Harvey was on his feet. Blood covered the dog's face and forelegs. It foamed at the corners of its mouth. It stared off into nothing. Harvey? The dog's head snapped toward the sound of Michael's voice. Michael heard a low growl start far back in the dog's throat, pushing a fresh wave of blood out through its bared teeth. The animal's eyes gave no indication that it recognized Michael in the least. All Michael could register there was rage. The growl continued like a shovel dragged across wet gravel. Michael's confusion was long gone, replaced by a paralyzing fear. He was rooted to the spot even as Harvey began to bark frantically at him. It felt like an eternity, but somehow Michael was able to strangle out a few words. Calm down, boy. Harvey bolted towards Michael, and the fury that came off it like a heat broke his paralysis. He was sprinting for the nearest door when Harvey got hold of him. 
Michael hit the floor hard with his chin and the world exploded in a flash of white heat. He shook his head and looked back to find Harvey tearing at his pant leg. The dog shook its head back and forth and Michael could hear the denim shred. Michael had enough presence of mind to be thankful all the dog had gotten was his pants. He rolled onto his back and kicked out at the dog. He caught Harvey square in the face around his left eye. Michael was sickened to feel his heel sink into the dog's skull as though it were made of clay rather than bone. Blood gushed from Harvey's ruined face and bits of brain and viscera dribbled out of his eye socket. The dog stumbled back, howling. Michael screamed as he fought his way to his feet. He heard the dog snarl as it chased him down the hall. Michael slammed the door to the bathroom behind him and felt Harvey slam into it a moment later. The dog howled in pain again as blood pooled under the door towards Michael's feet. Michael stayed pressed against the door as Harvey threw himself against the other side again and again. The howls of pain that escaped the creature were horrific. Michael found he was weeping. The sounds from the other side of the door changed as the dog continued to try and bust its way in. To Michael, they were the wet, tearing, and packing sounds he heard when making hamburger into patties. Before too long, the rate and intensity with which they came diminished until the only sound left was that of Michael's own hitching breath. It was a full twenty minutes before Michael was able to force himself to open the bathroom door. He'd grabbed the most lethal object he could find, which happened to be the handle of a plunger by the toilet. Had he thought about it harder, he'd have grabbed the heavy lid of the toilet's tank instead. Plunger handle raised, he slowly opened the door and looked around. Harvey was nowhere in sight. Michael opened the door and took a step out into the room beyond. His feet immediately went out from under him. He looked around at the mess he'd fallen into and screamed. Both the floor and Michael were covered in melted dog guts. Only Harvey's empty skin remained intact to let Michael know what it was soaking into his clothes. The rest of the dog had run out of its orifices. Michael screamed again and again as he tried and failed to scramble out of the puddle of Harvey he'd fallen into. He tried to crawl away on his hands and knees, succeeding only in slipping face first into what was left of his dog. He was finally able to fight against the slick tile floor and crab walk his way back into the bathroom. Good lord, he choked. He looked out at the liquefied dog remains that streaked toward him in a horrible broken crimson line, and the empty husk of the German shepherd crumpled in the middle of it. He barely made it to the toilet in time to vomit. The rest of the night was spent cleaning up Harvey's final mess. The tile floor in and around the bathroom cleaned easily enough, but the blood was nearly everywhere. Michael had to heave the contents of his stomach into the toilet again when he tried to move Harvey's empty skin and more liquefied remains fell out and hit the floor with a smack. The living room carpet, while a far smaller affected surface area, took considerably longer to address. As it was, by the time Michael called it quits, there remained a sizable pink blotch in the middle of the room. Michael decided he'd have to see about getting the carpet replaced as soon as possible. For now, though, he was exhausted. Every muscle ached. He stumbled half-asleep already to the bedroom where he managed to pull off his blood-caked clothes and fall into bed. His sleep was deep and full of horrors. He woke to the insistent hum of his cell phone vibrating on the nightstand. He sat upright and, reflecting on the state of his undress paired with the sight of the ruined clothes crumpled on the floor, the events of the night before hit him like a tidal wave. He groped for the phone and nearly dropped it as it vibrated in his sleepy fingers. He saw from the time indicated on screen that it was hours after he should have started his shift at the restaurant. He answered the call. Hello? He said. The dishes were dirty when I got in this morning and you weren't here. 
It was Rooney. Michael felt his throat clench. His eyes welled up, and he resisted the urge to scream at the man on the other end of the call. I'm sorry, Mr. Rooney. I had a bad... My dog died, and... I'm sorry I didn't call. I told you you're a trim tab, Mikey, didn't I? Was Rooney's reply. Michael didn't answer. One thing I won't allow is a member of the team to let the rest of us twist in the wind. You're done, Mikey. Turn in your keys as soon as possible. Then he hung up. Michael sat on the bed for a long time before throwing his phone against the wall. It put a hole in the wall and the screen shattered when it hit the floor. He swore and went to pick up the broken device. He looked at the broken screen and saw his own face reflected hundreds of times in the facets. A thought occurred to him. He threw on a t-shirt and some shorts and went out to the shed. Throwing open the doors, he saw the broken chunks of the meteorite framed in the sunlight. He eyed them as though they may strike at any moment, but he moved toward them nonetheless. He sat down on a stool and pulled one of the chunks closer. He remembered shooing Harvey away as the dog was licking the crystals inside. No. No way, he said to no one in particular. He grabbed a lawnmower blade file off its hook on the wall in an old coffee cup. He used the file to grind the crystal into dust, which poured into the mug. The dust looked almost exactly like sugar. He grabbed a bottle of water out of the mini-fridge under the workbench and poured its contents into the mug, watching the dust dissolve. Michael stood in front of his lilac bush. He felt ridiculous watching and waiting for something to happen. He'd felt ridiculous the entire five minutes since he'd emptied the mug onto the ground under the bush. He was ready to call it quits when he saw the limbs start to curl in on themselves. Soon, the entire plant was clenched like a fist. He leaned in and saw tendrils of fluid leaking from all over. A branch sprang out like a whip and nearly struck Michael in the face. He dodged it and was nearly hit by another. He retreated a few steps and watched as the bush sprang to life, whipping and snapping, then clenching back in on itself. The more violent the motion, the more fluid ran from the plant. Michael raised a hand to cover his mouth. Crystals. They did this? He whispered. He watched as the lilac bush shook itself apart. Branches fell to the ground with wet little plops as their insides ran out in rivulets. Good lord, he choked. Within ten minutes, the lilac was nothing more than a pile of empty bark and goo. Michael was dumbfounded. How could a few grains of space dust have caused such a reaction? He spent much of the day contemplating what to do with the meteorite. Call the police? NASA? CIA? NSA? FBI? They'd lock him away in the loony bin. Truth be told, he half believed that's right where he belonged. Michael woke the next morning right on schedule to arrive on time to his now former job. He showered and dressed, made a quick stop in the shed, and drove to the restaurant. As usual, he was the first to arrive. He let himself in and flicked on the lights. The sink was overrun with filthy dishes. Flies landed here and there in droves along every crusted surface. Michael cleaned faster than he'd ever done when he was being paid for it. They were all in place and ready for the day before the next person arrived. That person turned out to be Tina, one of the pretty blonde waitresses of the type Rooney liked to hire. What are you doing here? Rooney fired you. Michael turned and offered her a cup of coffee. Worked it out, he said with a smile. The rest of the crew strolled in one after another, and Michael greeted them all in kind. By the time Rooney entered, the whole crew was getting along famously. The fryer was bumbling away at the home fries. The grill was covered in peppers and onions that steamed and sizzled. 
Everyone was laughing and joking like it was a lovely party rather than the morning shift. Glad to see we're all having fun, Rooney said. His tone was severe. Everyone in the kitchen fell silent. Rooney spied Michael in the corner. What's he doing here? They all looked at Michael confused. Tina, the pretty blonde waitress especially so. He said you worked it out. Michael just smiled and poured Rooney a cup of coffee with two heaping spoons of sugar, just the way he liked it. Well, Michael said, that may have been a bit of a fib. Who let him in here, Rooney demanded. Michael held up his keys and tossed them to Rooney. Said you wanted those back, Justin. Wouldn't want some disgruntled former employee to break in and cause a ruckus now, would you? My office, now. Rooney's face had turned almost purple. Michael was pretty sure it was the Justin. Absolutely, Michael smiled. He took the coffee he'd made for Rooney and followed him into the office. Just the way you like it, he said as he set it on his desk. What, you spit in this? Of course not. I'm here to mend fences, not to burn them, if you'll pardon the mixed metaphor. Rooney eyed Michael like he was a dangerous animal. Look, I let you down. I get it. I'm not here to get my job back. I just wanted to make sure you got the keys back and that we parted on good terms. I may need you for a reference, you know? He gave a winning smile. Rooney finally reached out and picked up the coffee with a nervous laugh. Yeah. Okay, Mikey. Best to move forward on a positive note. Thanks for getting the keys back. He took a sip of coffee. Outside the door, there was a scream. Dishes crashed and broke. More screams. Sounds of a struggle. Rooney crossed to the door and threw it open. The kitchen was a horror show. Tina, the pretty blonde waitress, had a pretty brunette waitress on the floor. She was tearing the dark-haired girl's throat out with her teeth. Blood sprayed out of both girls. The brunette from her ruined neck, the blonde from just everywhere. Rooney looked on in horror as Tina's eyes bulged like water balloons and fell from their sockets to dangle on her cheeks. Tina's arms sagged as the bones inside turned to goo. A waiter tried to pull Tina off the brunette, and his hand sunk into her deteriorating flesh. She screamed and turned on him, biting and clawing. At the other side of the kitchen, one of the waiters began to spout blood and scream as he strangled the man nearest him. One after another, the staff began to bleed and turn on one another. "'What did you do?' Rooney gasped. "'I made coffee,' Michael laughed. Rooney dropped the mug in his hand and it shattered on the tile floor. "'Oh, don't worry.' I didn't give you what they got. I figure at least one of them will take care of you. Rooney blinked stupidly. Mikey? Michael grabbed Rooney by the collar and pulled him close. It's Michael, asshole. He shoved Rooney into the kitchen. Those affected by the dust from the meteorite turned as one when Rooney crashed into the counter, knocking pots and pans off their hooks to crash on the floor. The waitstaff descended on him as a group. Michael relished Rooney's screams as his employees ripped into him. He swallowed to avoid vomiting. Someone lifted a fistful of Rooney's guts into the air triumphantly. Michael snuck past the pile of bodies all clamoring to get a mouthful of Rooney. Michael looked back as he opened the door and saw one of the waitresses, now too covered in gore and viscera to identify anymore, raise Rooney's severed arm before biting a chunk out of it. He left the kitchen and ran to his car. He heard a snarl and something that had once been a co-worker grabbed the hood of his sweatshirt. Michael lurched forward and felt himself wrench free as the ghoul behind him screamed. A wet smack told him the thing hadn't let go. 
he'd torn its arm off. He sped out of the parking lot. He never took his foot off the gas until he was beyond the town limits. This has been Ghosts in the Graveyard, a podcast of horror fiction, presented by the Lunch Door Podcast Network. Special thanks to Tim Beak for the use of his music, Ghost, as the intro and outro of our show. As always, thank you for listening, and stay scared. important British actor. Do you enjoy podcasts? Then I urge you to listen to the Beer Reviewed Journal, a beer podcast for the discerning imbibist. Take a journey into the unknown with your hosts, Matt Knotts. Which really did nothing to alleviate the illusion that I did not shit my pants. Because I walked in there wearing jeans, and I walked out wearing khakis with jeans in a bag. And McKenneth Blue. We're just kissing so many of these sponsorships away. Like, like, um, I, I don't know, Casper, if you're listening, I'll suck your dick. <laughs> like, I'm not proud. There will be thrills. I took a sip of this right before we started rolling, and the noise that I made was something along the lines of, Mmm, chills. Your boy got home and threw it in the freezer for a minute, figuring, Yeah, we're going to record in a little bit. I'll make sure it's cold by the time we, uh, we record here. And then... Life happened, and it sat in the freezer for about an hour, um, which was just long enough to kind of make it almost a slushy consistency at a certain point. And romance? This this is a an IPA that will fill your hole. No matter what kind of hole you've got, this IPA will fill your hole and just leave you feeling filled and pleased. Why, why is this a horny episode? What happened? <laughs> what the fuck happened? The Beer Review Journal is a proud member of the Lunchable Podcast Network, and it's available on all your most beloved podcast platforms. At... Honestly, who wrote this shit? It's just two fat bastards getting drunk in front of a microphone. I... No, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not reading the rest. No, I'm. I'm going to my car.